And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to loan you one. There's some in the back there, so just raise your hand and someone will grab one. We will project the verses on the screen, but it's even better to have a Bible right there in your hands. Um, For those of you who are new, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm a pastor here, and welcome. It's great to have you with us. We are in a series in the book of Philippians. We've taken some time out from our series for various reasons. The past two weeks, we had guest speakers, and uh, I hope you enjoyed hearing from uh, some other pastors from other churches in Sovereign Grace Ministries. Uh, We heard from Mark Prater, who oversees the Northeast region, and he spoke from Colossians, and I found it very encouraging just talking about what the gospel does, the marks of the gospel, and the whole... uh, aspect of the gospel where it propels us outward. Uh, It works its way, it propels us outward, and just the call to church planting. So we are excited as a church about church planting and some possibilities. And then to hear from Jim Donahue last week as well uh, about gathering and going from the book of Acts. I was very encouraged. But we are going to get back into Philippians. And before we look at the passage, let me just give you a quick refresher on what's going on in the book of Philippians. This letter is written to the church in Philippi by the Apostle Paul. And they are a dear church to Paul. There is a close connection. There is this friendship, what we've called a gospel friendship between them. A mutual love and respect. And what's going on in this letter, behind this letter, is Paul is in prison. And so he's writing to update them on his imprisonment because apparently they're concerned for him. They have a good friendship. It's, it's very natural, of course, for them to be concerned about Paul. So that's part of what's going on here. Um, they have actually helped Paul out by sending a financial gift. But there's also something else going on. It looks like there's some problems with disunity in this church. And so perhaps the the person who's brought the letter, uh, I think it's Epaphroditus, he has brought, them, brought Paul news about the disunity. And so this letter is going back for those different reasons, going back to the Philippians to let them know about his imprisonment, to thank them for their gift, to build up their partnership in the gospel, this gospel friendship, and also to address the issues of disunity that are there in Philippi. So he starts out, he introduces himself, he he gives thanks for them. He is, his heart is full as he thinks about his dear friends in Philippi. He communicates his regular prayer for them. And then he updates them on his imprisonment in verses 12 through 14 we looked at the other week. He, he updates them on what's going on, and he helps them see that imprisonment different, differently than they might see naturally. He wants them to see his imprisonment not as defeat, but as an opportunity for the gospel. The opportunity for the gospel to build up believers and emboldening them and propelling them to, to not be afraid of persecution, but to share boldly. And also an opportunity to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ, who are around Paul's life. So he seeks to encourage them. And then he moves into the verse that we're going to look at, the section we're going to look at today in verse 15. He's talking about Christians being emboldened to proclaim Christ, and then he goes into verse 15. We'll look at that in a minute, but let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of His Word as we look at His Word today. Lord, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word, Your living Word. 
And your word is more than just literature. It's more than just a, a historic letter from an important person to a church. Your word is your word. You crafted your word in your infinite wisdom and goodness. You crafted your word to proclaim who you are, to minister to your people, to accomplish your purposes. You have crafted your word and you have even created this section of scripture so that we today at King of Grace Church in 2012 would benefit from what you have to say to us. So Lord, we listen to you. Speak, Lord, your servants listen. Speak to us. Change us. Lead us in your great and glorious ways. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Just four short verses. Verse 15 says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Fantastic, fantastic passage we'll dig into. Well, there were two brothers they decided to go along separate career paths. The older brother got into agriculture, became very successful in grain products. The younger brother got into ranching and did very well with sheep and wool products. Both prospered in their, in their particular careers. Both gave to charity. The younger brother, he would, he would sell off 10% of his herd every year and sell it off and use all the money for their very best charities. The older brother sold off some of his grain products and he gave the charity too. But in time, the reputation of the younger brother, the generous brother, became well known throughout, throughout the city, throughout the region, and, and throughout the media. It was the talk of the media, just how amazingly generous and kind he was. Soon, actually, people started to compare the brothers, and they compared the unbrother unfavorably to the generous younger brother. Though he gave, he began to be compared and called even stingy in light of his brother. Well, this irked the older brother. And as time went on and year by year went on, he became very embittered toward his brother. He found himself complaining more and more about his brother, suspecting his motives. He even began to fantasize about what would happen. Wouldn't it be nice if somehow he just died, and then I would get what he has, and then I would be well-known and respected? Well, sadly, it went from just fantasizing about it to actual, actual pl a plan. And in time, he hatched a plan where, in conjunction with some unsavory friends, he had his brother killed in cold blood. He was caught, and he found that the death of his brother did not bring any of the satisfaction he anticipated, and he became a restless wanderer, ever living embittered toward his dead brother. 
Do you know this story? Two brothers, the first two brothers in Scripture, the first sibling rivalry, Cain and Abel. Isn't it interesting, isn't it sad that the first two brothers, the first family really in Scripture is one where someone gets killed because of envy. Abel gets killed because of the envy of Cain. Envy is a serious and a common sin. We all fall prey to it, all of us. And, and maybe you can't relate to the story of Cain and Abel, um, but just put yourself in a modern context and think about this struggle. And this, this story is crafted. It's not a true story, but I think it's very much like a true story. Imagine you're at BJ's getting gas. Anyone here get gas at BJ's? It has the best prices. That's where I go. You're in line. Well, actually, you're going to get in line. You know how you had to come in and you have to kind of commit to one of the, the pumps? Well, you see at one pump, there's this uh, cute little old lady with a cute little Toyota filling up. And you're thinking, that's the line, right? Because that's a small little Toyota, only going to be a few gallons. And so you pull up your, your old minivan jalopy behind this cute old lady, thinking, you know, this will be just a minute or so. And you're waiting. And you're watching the cute old lady fill her tank, and there's something going on that's wrong because it's taking forever. She's looking at the pump. She's looking that down. And, and it just takes a long time, and you're thinking, oh, man, I chose the wrong line. And you're just about to pull out and go to the next one that's open, and this really nice Lexus SUV pulls in behind that car. And then 10 seconds later, that car pulls off, and they, they pull up and start filling their tank. And at that point, you are experiencing, if you're like me, gas pump envy. You're thinking, I made the wrong choice. I chose the wrong line. And now this Lexus gets to fill up their tank. And I have to wait for this old woman who doesn't know how to pump gas. And you watch this uh, Lexus. And out of the Lexus comes this uh, well-dressed man. He's actually in ski stuff. He's well-dressed. And you look over and, and you can tell they're, they're a wealthy family or a Prosper's family, he's actually a happy guy, and you look, and there's his wife in the front seat. She's got her matching ski gear on, and the, the kids in the back, and they've got their skis on the roof, and you're starting to think, man, why, why, is it that, why is it that I don't get to go skiing now? Why is it that I have to drive my jalopy minivan and wait behind the old lady in the gas pump? And this man has everything. So you're not only having gas pump envy, but you're having car envy, family envy, and then you started thinking, well, he's probably filling up the tank to do what? He's going to go up skiing, probably in his private chalet, it's, right, on, on this beautiful mountain slope. And here I am in line, and I'm getting gas because it's Friday, and I have to work tomorrow because my boss needs me for my measly whatever uh, salary that I get. I have to slave away. And your mind starts going through this, perhaps, uh, where you start thinking these sort of things, and it turns into... Uh, more than gas pump envy, more than car envy, it just becomes even life envy. And you start thinking, you know, the, the, matter of fact, that, that guy, I mean, I actually don't want to be like that because he's just, he's just a, he's got to be phony. I mean, this is a phony family and he probably works on Wall Street and rips off people like me with, by what he does there. And, he, and, and so the scenario unfolds and what started out as five minutes at BJ's becomes maybe a whole day to unwind yourself from the envy. The car envy, the, the life envy, the salary envy, whatever else is there. Have you ever experienced something like that? I have. That's actually not me in the story, but 
But uh, I was behind an old lady the other day. And, <laughs> and I had gas pump envy. Envy is common to us. And it's a serious sin. Envy is basically this. Envy is, is begrudging someone because they have something you want. It's not just coveting, which says, I want the, the Lexus. It's actually a personal aspect to coveting. It's saying, I'm not happy with this person because they have something I want. So envy is wanting what someone else has. It's different than jealousy. Jealousy has to do usually with wanting to keep something, or particularly someone that someone else is threatening. That's jealousy. Envy is I want what that person has and begrudging them for it. It's, it's, it's common. It's common to all of us. We've all done it. And, and actually, uh, there's all sorts of forms. I put on my Facebook last night, explain to me, help me understand why so many people dislike the Patriots. Now, now I know I've got a biased audience here, but um, people had all different reasons. And then one of my friends who's, who's very vocal on how he doesn't like the Patriots said, envy, plain and simple. Some people don't like the Patriots because they're good. Um, and, and they get mad at them. And I'm sorry if you're a Giants fan. I'm not trying to rub, rub your face in it or anything like that. But, but it's just a reality. Yeah. Envy is something that, that we all struggle with. And this passage today actually addresses envy in a very powerful way. It addresses envy, and it gives us a cure for this terrible, this terrible struggle that we all have. Envy Envy is a terrible thing that will consume our lives and leave us empty. And there is a cure for envy. So let's look at the passage and dig in and understand the cure, the wonderful cure for envy. So in our passage, verse 15, Paul is introducing this situation that's going on here. He's not introducing this just because he loves to share stories or whatever. He, there's a point here. We'll dig into that. And he says, he introduces in verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. That's a shocking statement that Paul makes right there. Some indeed preach Christ. He's speaking about the fact that people have been emboldened by him being imprisoned. And he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. What's shocking about that is that there are people who actually preach Christ from envy and rivalry. They preach Christ from envy and, and rivalry. How can that be? How can you proclaim Christ? How can you proclaim the one who laid down his life for others to, to basically bring attention to your life, to lift your life up to him, to give yourself an advantage over other people? How can you proclaim him who humbled himself out of your own Pride. How can you use Christ to step on someone else? It, it doesn't make sense. It's a shocking, a shocking account. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. It's shocking. It makes no sense. But you know what? It happens all the time. It happens all the time. It happens in Paul's day. It happens today as well. And this passage isn't here for us to be shocked and think about what a bunch of dirty, rotten people to preach Christ from envy. That's just horrible. I'm so glad that I never preach Christ from envy, and I feel much better about myself now 
now you can go home. That's not the point here in this passage. That's not what Paul is getting at here. Paul is sharing this story because he is ministering to a church that is struggling with rivalry. It is struggling with, with disunity. And he's setting before them this teaching, this example, to call them to see their problem and to find the cure. It's all here in these four verses. We struggle. We struggle with envy. The Philippians struggle with envy. And perhaps that was much of the reason for their strife. We need help. We need help to come and rescue us from envy. We are desperate. Envy affects all of us. And, and Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians to help them, to minister to them, not to kind of point at those that do this wrong thing, preaching Christ for envy, but, but to minister to them. So God brings a cure to us through this scripture. Now, some people have said, well, you know, they really can't be preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. I mean, I just don't see how that could be. Because, I mean, there, how would you... How would you be preaching Christ, the, the purity of the gospel from envy and rivalry? And you know what? They are preaching Christ. I'm pretty convinced of it because whenever, whenever in Scripture, whenever there's a preaching, a proclamation that's not the pure gospel, Paul identifies it as such. So there's other places in Scripture where, for instance, in the book of Galatians, people are proclaiming a gospel. They're proclaiming a gospel. They're taking the truth about Christ's death for sin and his resurrection and saying, well, this is true. And then they're adding something to it. They're saying, not only do you have to believe that, but you actually have to do these other things if you really want to stay in good with God. So they're mixing the gospel with some good works. They're mixing the gospel with good works that keep you in right relationship with God. And Paul says that that is no gospel at all. He says that's not the gospel. That's not preaching Christ. That's preaching a false thing. So he has no problem in identifying when things are not the gospel, when they're not preaching Christ. But here he says they're preaching Christ. It's very clear that these people are proclaiming the gospel. They're doing a good job. They're not proclaiming heresy. There's no substantial error in their proclamation. The problem is they're preaching the true gospel from false motives. And they're doing it to gain some advantage over Paul. We don't know the whole story. We don't know these people. We don't know what was going on. But we can, we can maybe think about some possible reasons, maybe what was going on. Maybe, maybe Paul's imprisonment for them was just an embarrassment. They were seeking to reach people with the gospel in Rome and, and proclaim Christ. And in, in, in those days, I mean, it is true today as well, to some degree, being in prison was an embarrassment. So here is the, this leading spokesman for the gospel in prison. And they might have thought, this is an embarrassment. We're trying to proclaim Christ to this culture. And the, one of the chief spokesmen is in prison, and that's hampering us. So maybe they just felt like this, this guy's not helping us. Maybe they didn't like Paul's flavor of Christianity. Maybe there was just some style issues or whatever. Maybe they just thought, you know, this guy, he's, maybe because he was well-known, they just got jealous or envious of him and thought he's full of himself. Maybe they thought, you know what, we've got a good understanding of how to evangelize Rome. We've got the right method to reach Rome. Paul's method doesn't work. And if Paul becomes the guy, we're going to do, do a poorer job. It could have been that. There could have been a whole range of motives for them and being envious and rivalrous with Paul. We don't know the details. But let me tell you that I don't think 
This situation is all that different than what goes on today. The same thing goes on today at times. How so? Well, often there is a rivalry between churches and denominations. We watch other churches or other denominations draw thousands to their church, but in a way perhaps that's different than how we would do it. Maybe in a way that doesn't put the accent on things in quite the way that we do. But they do preach Christ. They do proclaim Christ as, as the way, the truth, and the life. They do proclaim that it's by grace alone, through faith alone. They do proclaim those things, but they do it differently. They don't accent quite the same way, or, or, or there might just be style differences. And so rather than learning from them, we critique them at times. We critique them and seek even to undermine their success. We might say in our hearts or out loud things like, oh, uh, no wonder those guys draw so many people. They, they hardly ever mention sin. Or people go to that church for the show, but not really to be followers of Christ. Or, just wait and see, that brand new church that's growing by leaps and bounds, uh, just wait till they hit a wall, then we'll see what they're made of. Have you ever had a thought like that? About another church or another denomination? It occurs, and we can relate to other churches that are preaching the gospel with envy and rivalry. And use the gospel really to promote our team to build our team, and our motivation becomes, I want to be bigger than that other church or more influential than that other church. And we're no different than the people in Philippians chapter 1, preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. It occurs within the church, too. The church, sadly, can be, is often a place where people can exercise personal ambitions in a way that they may not be allowed to elsewhere. Sometimes the church is a place where you can, you can kind of exercise your personal ambitions. You can be in charge of something. You can make something happen in a way that maybe you don't get to do that elsewhere. And what this means is that sometimes people seek to build their own kingdoms within a church. And rivalry is at work in that, and you know it's at work when something happens to threaten that person's ministry, and you watch how they react. People can walk around in some churches, and by the way, I'm not thinking of our church here, so just in case you're wondering, what's he trying to get at? Um, but it happens. I've seen it happen. People can walk around on eggshells because if they offer any critique of that person in that ministry, they know they're going to get backlash. Don't say anything about the choir to person in charge because you're just going to get, you're going to get, you know, some backlash. And, and, and people, ministries will sometimes exist in churches for a long time because some people are afraid to address the person in charge and say, you know, we, to tell them, you know, we don't really need that ministry anymore because, you know, the person's just going to be upset and, and, and so forth. So it's not addressed. It happens in churches. And I know of situations, again, I'm not thinking of our church, but I've been around and seen places where people hold on to their ministries, hold on to the things they do in a church, more from promotion of self or feeling good about self than truly being oriented around the purposes of the gospel. And it can happen in small groups, prayer groups, men's and ladies groups, choirs, children's ministry, worship teams, even on pastoral teams. 
I heard of a story, uh, read about a story in a church where the nursery committee, I guess, or whatever it was, the nursery team, whose job was to lead the nursery ministry in this particular church, were buying some new cribs, which is a great thing. Nursery ministry is a great thing. They were buying new cribs, and, and they couldn't decide on what sort of cribs to get. And some people on the nursery team wanted cribs with wooden bars, and others wanted cribs with the metal bars. I guess. I don't, I've never seen cribs with metal bars, but that's what the story said. Metal bars. I guess they're more sanitary. Does anyone know anything about metal bars on cribs? I don't know. Anyhow, they had this discussion, and it turned into an argument, and it went on into the wee hours of the morning, arguing back and forth, wooden bars versus metal bars. Where do, what does that come from? What sort of thing would motivate you to argue for hours over whether to have metal bars or wooden bars in your cribs? I suspect that it's that they had turned the nursery ministry into their own kingdom building thing. And it was more about them winning and them protecting their turf than serving. And so this passage, when we first read verse 15, we think this is shocking. It's shocking that someone would preach Christ from envy and rivalry. How could it be? These people must have been monsters. No, these people were just like you and me. Because we live motivated at times from envy, motivated to build our own ministry at the expense even of others, at the expense even perhaps of the gospel. So we need Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. This envy is all around us, and we've seen it, and Proverbs tells us that envy rots the bones. It's a horrible and ugly cancer, and we desperately need a cure. Well, the cure is here in this section of Scripture. Paul puts forth these two groups of people. There are two groups of people here. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. If you could just keep the verse up too, that would be great, please. Others from goodwill, there's two groups. There's a group that preaches Christ from envy and rivalry, and a group that does it from goodwill. And my guess is the goodwill group outnumbers the other group, but they both exist. And then Paul describes them in verse 16, the latter, so the goodwill group, do it out of love. Love motivates them. Love is what drives them. They do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So they're doing it out of love, and their, their thinking process is, Paul is in prison for the defense of the gospel. So they support Paul. Now he describes the other group. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry. So not love, but rivalry. Not sincerely, but thinking. So their thought process is thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So there's these two groups. One, they are motivated by rivalry, and they're working to afflict Paul in prison. The other group's motivated by love. They're knowing that he's put there for the gospel. What's the difference between the two groups? What's the difference between these two groups? One group is oriented around themselves. One group is oriented around rivalry, oriented around themselves. The other group is oriented around the gospel. They're oriented around the gospel. They, they relate to Paul oriented around the gospel. They they are seeking to proclaim the gospel in love, and they support Paul because they know Paul is put in prison for what reason? The fence of the gospel. So the gospel is their chief, chief 
interest. The gospel is what they're interested in. They want to promote the gospel. And so they're glad that, that to support Paul because they know he's there for the gospel. They're not thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about how to promote their own ministry. There's love that's motivated, love for God, love for others. Their orientation is outward towards God and towards others, around, centered around the gospel. And so they support Paul. The other group doesn't have that. They're oriented around themselves. And, and they they see the gospel as a means to promote themselves. So they want to afflict Paul because they're envious of him. They want, uh, they want some of his action. They want to have perhaps his notoriety or authority, whatever it is. We don't know the details of it. So there's a difference between them, between the two groups in their orientation. Boy, that matters. That makes all the difference, what you're oriented on. It makes all the difference. The goodwill group is oriented around the gospel. They're oriented around Christ. The other group is oriented around self. And it, it makes all the difference. There is, in a sense, uh, the group that is oriented around rivalry there, they have a broken compass, basically. They have a compass. Uh, and a compass, we know the needle, right, points towards north. If you want to navigate in the woods or wherever, you use a compass. You, can, you know the needle points to north, actually slightly off of north. And you can know where you're going and, and always know where true north is. But if you have a broken compass, if your compass points east instead of north, and you try to navigate through the woods, you're not going to make it, you're not going to go to the same place as the person with the right compass. The group that proclaims Christ out of rivalry, their compass is broken. And so they're not going God's way, they're going their own way. The other group's compass points in the right direction. We are called to have a compass, a gospel compass. The cure for rivalry, the cure for envy in our lives is to be reoriented around the gospel, to have that compass fixed or exchange that compass for a new one that points to the gospel, that our reference point would be Christ and the gospel, and that would change our lives and change our motivations. We would exchange that compass that's called the, the self-oriented compass. Really, the, that other compass, the broken compass, it doesn't point just to east or west. It points to self. It points to self, and, and, and if you use a compass that points to self, you're going to get lost really quick. Um, you're, it's always going to be pointing towards yourself. It's not going to lead you. And, and we're called to exchange that compass for the, for the compass that points to the gospel. We're to radically reorient ourselves around the gospel. That's the difference here. That's the difference between these two groups. There's a different compass. The gospel, the good news so Paul uses the word, by the way, gospel here. Uh, he talks about the defense of the gospel. He talks about proclaiming Christ. And, and really, they're one and the same. The gospel is the good news of, of Christ, the good news that, that Christ has come and lived the perfect life, offered up that life on the cross, died for our sins, paid the penalty for us, was raised from the dead in the power of God. He's, a, he's ascended. He's reigning now. He's returning soon. This good news Philippians talks about the good news. Sean read from Philippians chapter 2, and we, we see Christ as the ultimate example of the one who did not live in envy and rivalry, but laid down his life for others, humbled himself for the Father. He offered up his life. Uh, he offered up his life so that we might find in him forgiveness, that we might treasure him. Later in chapter 3, Paul talks about his life. 
and he, and he says, as he talks about his life, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Paul's basically saying, I traded in my compass, my self-oriented compass, my compass that says it's about me, it's about how good I am, it's about what I can achieve. It's about promoting myself. It's about making myself happy. I've exchanged that compass. As good as it might have been, and as good as it might have seemed, I've, I've, I count it as rubbish, and I receive the compass that's oriented around Christ, that it points to him that Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my strength. Christ is my wisdom. Christ is my shepherd. Christ is the lover of my soul. That's the compass I have now. He had exchanged that for Christ. That's what the gospel does. That's what these four short verses call us to. We are to see ourselves in the story. We are to see the tendency to live out of envy and strife. The tendency even to use the gospel itself to promote ourselves. And to put that away. To exchange our compass. And exchanging that compass, reorienting ourselves, is not just something you do on the day you, you come to Christ. And that's a glorious day. It's a wonderful day. And if you're in the place where you have not yet turned from self and sin... And put your trust in Christ. We invite you to do that today. He invites us and he calls us to, to do that. He, he, uh, it's very simple. You just simply say, Lord, I don't want any more of myself being in charge. I don't want any more of my sin. I want to trust in you. In your death for my sins. I want to follow you. I want you to be in charge. It's that simple. And it's glorious uh, to do that. And it changes your life. And you have forgiveness. And all the promises are yours. But it never stops, that you never, you never stop needing to change compasses. As long as we're here, until we go to be with the Lord, there'll always be this tendency to take out that self-compass again, to be oriented towards self instead of to the Lord. And so this is for us. These are Christians who are preaching Christ out of envy. And these are Christians in Philippi that are promoting themselves in the church and therefore experiencing strife. Now, we have wonderful unity here in our church, so I'm not... This message doesn't plan to address a specific problem. But this message, I believe, is planned by God to address our hearts because we all struggle with this. And if left unaddressed, we will struggle as a church with disunity like the Philippians. So this is medicine from God, preventative medicine for us to take and to be changed by the Lord as we learn to orient ourselves around the gospel. So we see here these two groups and the example of the second group, but we also see Paul's example in this passage too. Paul's example is radical. Think about it. Imagine being in prison. You're in prison, and you have laid down your life for the gospel. You've given up all the comforts you could have had. Paul came from a wealthy family, probably was a wealthy and a prestigious person. He laid it all down for the gospel. He's following Christ, and now he's in prison in Rome. And people are actually preaching Christ. I don't know how he learned this, how he knew it, but people are actually preaching Christ to undermine him somehow. And you're in prison, and you're the Apostle Paul. Now, this is, this is the Apostle Paul. If you turn to Acts 13, this is the same guy. He was no slouch. He, wasn't, he didn't kind of invent a way to make himself feel better about these people, you know, because he just 
uh, you know, they're being so mean to me, I, I need to pretend I'm good. He, it, it's, I mean, it's genuine. He was no slouch. He could have done something. In Acts 13, there's a guy, actually, who opposes the gospel. Uh, he is actively interfering with Paul's testimony, and, and, and he's, a, he's basically a wizard for the, the local official there. And Paul calls down blindness on the guy. And the guy's blind. He's blinded temporarily. And, and then the gospel goes forward. Now, he did it for good reasons. But he could have said in jail, you know what? I, don't, I mean, I don't know if he could have said this. But, I mean, he had done things in this power before. He could have said, all right, all those guys, blind, boom. And, and half the, half, whatever, all the, whatever the percentage of guys are preaching out of envy, boom, they're blind. He, I mean, he was no slouch. He could have perhaps done something like that. But, but he didn't. Why? What does he say? What does he say in the verse? See, Paul was radically affected, radically changed by the love of Christ. He, he looked at himself radically differently than others did. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified. This is Paul describing himself. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that, Paul, that verse describes Paul's heart, his life. And so when he faces adversity from people who are envious, he doesn't lash out at them, but because he's oriented around the gospel, he says, what then? What then? What should I do? Should I make them blind? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, whether from falsehood, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul wants to see his most favorite person in all the world. He wants to see his God proclaimed. And so he doesn't mind if there's some false motives in the proclamation of Christ. He doesn't mind. It doesn't trip him up. He's excited to see Christ proclaimed. And so that's his orientation. He can lay aside petty squabbles. He can lay aside envy and self-promotion because he's focusing on Christ. That is the cure for Paul. That is the cure for the other people in Rome. That is the cure for us. When we see ourselves as crucified, no longer living, but Christ living in us. When we see ourselves living a life of faith, not in ourselves, not in our whatever, but in Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. It frees us. It frees us up from envy. It changes our lives. So Paul can look at life radically different. And what you'll see in the book of Philippians is Paul again and again laying before the Philippians the example of his life. How he lived because he was freed in Christ. Later on, as he's talking about the gift that they gave him, he thanks them. He, he's very glad for this partnership. And then he says in that section, uh, either right before, I think it's right after he talks about it, he says in verse 11 at the end of chapter 4, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I've learned the secret of being behind the lady in the gas pump and waiting for hours and being the first one there. Uh, all these things, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul has learned to live his life 
around the Lord, depending on the Lord. And so it doesn't matter so much whether he's wealthy or poor. It doesn't matter so much whether things are going well or poorly. It doesn't matter even whether he is hungry or well-fed. He has Christ. He has Christ. And Christ strengthens him and changes his orientation. And that's what God calls us to. He calls us to the same orientation around the gospel. And he calls us to put away the self-centered ways to trust in Christ. He calls us to focus on the gospel, to remember the gospel, to return to the gospel, the good news of Christ again and again, and be nurtured and have our orientation changed and to be rescued through the gospel from envy. And you know the gospel has affected you. You know the gospel has affected you when you start to see fruit in your life like the Apostle Paul. You know the gospel has affected you when worldly success is not the prime factor in your life anymore. It's not a factor in your life, the prime factor. You know the gospel's change you when you don't care if people despise you as long as Christ is proclaimed. You know the gospel has impacted your life when you aren't living to promote your own agenda, but you want to see Christ's agenda. You know the gospel's grabbed you and turned your life upside down when you are willing and even eager to receive critique for whatever you do, your ministry perhaps in the church or your job. You want to receive critique because you want to do better. You want to see the purpose of Christ promoted. And you are eager to grow and to learn. And you even want to see others raised up, perhaps in your ministry, to take over and do better than you. And you're happy about it. I anticipate the day when that happens here for me as the lead pastor. And I want to do all I can by God's grace. And not to say I'm free ever from envy. I have to return to the gospel for the power of the gospel to resist that. But I look forward to the day when someone else who can serve you better is raised up. And we, we want to see him raised up. We want to see people like that sent out for church plants as well. We want to have our orientation around the Lord. You know the gospel has affected your life when we can do these sort of things. When you allow even your ministry perhaps in the church to be passed on to someone else, to shut down. You know the gospels transform your heart when you get excited for the growth of that church, that other church that is a little wacky in your eyes, a little bit off for some reason. But you're excited for the growth of that church because you know as that church grows, they're going to hear about Jesus. The gospel will be proclaimed, perhaps not as good as you think you do it, but it's being proclaimed. It's the same gospel. And you know the gospel's changed your life when you rejoice, even when you're moved to tears over the thought that, boy, they're, they're growing and people are being rescued from their sin and, and God is being exalted. You know the gospel's changed your heart when you relate to other churches that way, whatever they might be, as long as they preach the gospel. You know the gospel's got a hold of you when you sit at the gas pump or at work or you relate to your sibling who is always better than you at everything, or your neighbor, and it just doesn't matter. And you want prosperity for them, and you want true prosperity for them in the Lord, and you're content. The gospel has power to rescue us from envy. The band could come up.
That's the message of Philippians 1, 15 through 18. That's the example that Paul's putting before the Philippians. He's calling them to, to live this way, to orient themselves around the gospel, to be different, to have their motives altered. And God is calling us as well to do the same. And perhaps as I shared this morning, you were thinking of a situation, a person you know, a sibling, co-worker, neighbor. Maybe it's another church. And you recognize, you know what, I've been envious. I've wanted to have some advantage over that person or that church. Before we close in song, let's take a minute to confess to the Lord that as envy, as sin, to receive the forgiveness that's ours in Christ, and then the power that comes to us through the gospel to reorient us around Christ, to be different in how we live. Let's do that, and then we'll close in song.